Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is probably overly personal. This is a couple of voices inside of your head. How are you today? My name is Brad Listy, and it's good to be with you. I'm here in Los Angeles. My guest is Brittany Sonnenberg. She has a new novel out. It's called Home Leave. It's available from Grand Central Publishing. Uh, very pleased to have her here on the program, and she and I are going to be talking momentarily. First, uh, however, I do want to read some mail uh, and uh, you know what, just before, before I forget, let me remind everybody that if you do want to email me, the address is letters at other com. You can let me know what you think of the show. You can let me know what you think. Generally, uh, you can respond to something in a particular episode. You can ask a question. You can tell a story that is completely unrelated to uh, anything, whatever you like. So, uh, once again, the, uh, the address is letters at other com. So, uh, today, uh, the email that I'm going to read to you comes from a listener named Paris who writes, Hey Brad, I guess I'll start by saying I love the podcast. It's so interesting to hear about the lives 
of all the writers you interview. They're such unique people. I was listening to episode 281 with Ana Carete earlier today, and I heard what you said about those people who correct foreign pronunciations acting as though they're culturally superior or whatever. Uh, I laughed because I totally do it and throw French words into my English sentences and all that. I kept listening and later heard you mention how you can get KFC in Iran. And my first thought was to email you because I was in Iran in December and you cannot get KFC. And then I remembered your comment about being uh, culturally superior and was like, holy shit, if I email him, I'm totally being one of those people. But since I already know I'm one of those people, I decided to email anyway. To continue on this kick of cultural superiority, I'll give you a cool fact. Outside the entrance to the pyramids in Egypt, there's a restaurant with KFC on the bottom floor and Pizza Hut on the top floor. The Pizza Hut is pretty good. I went there a few times over the five weeks I spent living next to the pyramids. I'm not sure about the KFC, though. Anyway, keep up the great work, and I hope this has proved an interesting email. Signed, Paris. So thanks, Paris. I appreciate you uh, writing in, and thanks as well for the information uh, regarding uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken in Iran and uh, fast food options in Egypt, etc. I got to say, you know, I stand by my position, generally. You know, like as I as I mentioned in episode 281, it's all about the delivery, how you do it, how it's handled. You know, uh, like I'm not inherently opposed to people pronouncing words in a foreign tongue with uh, accuracy. What I'm opposed to is you know people leveraging their multilingualism and you know globe uh, globe trotting lifestyles in an ex uh, in an effort uh, you know to Im- imply a kind of superiority in an English slash American context. If you know what I mean, just listen to, uh, to episode 281. I'm not going to do it all over again. I go into it in detail in the uh, monologue to episode 281. And I do have to add uh, to Paris, the gentleman who wrote to me, that having the name Paris and being a, a culturally superior multilingual human being makes it doubly annoying. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it's bad enough to have someone correct you in French or, or start talking to you. Uh, about wine regions in France, or uh, I should say, uh, Appalachians, Appalachians. And, you know, to have them do that to you in French, but then on top of it, your name is Paris. That's too much. You got to stop. <laughs> For the love of God, just stop doing that. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Brittany Sonnenberg. Uh, boy, did I enjoy talking with her. She's a delightful uh, person, and her new novel, Home Leave, is out there now from Grand Central Publishing. There's a lot of buzz around this book, a lot of good reviews happening, and I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. So here she is. This is Brittany Sonnenberg, and her novel, once again, is called Home Leave. I'm sitting on a massive sofa that's uh, in my living room that's kind of like an island of a sofa uh, and it's in Kreuzberg in Berlin my apartment is um, yeah it's Krefekitz is the actual neighborhood so you're in Berlin yeah alright and you're and how you say a massive sofa like how how big are we talking <laughs> just out of curiosity well it's kind of it's kind of like a queen size bed sort of it's okay. it's like a yeah it's really impressive all right. Is that like a German thing, or do they have these in the States and I'm just not aware of it? Because I, I want one. <laughs> it might be a German thing. Yeah, Germans are surprisingly good at going after comfort sometimes. Okay. Maybe, yeah. Okay, so I how don't did... know, maybe because they get bummed by other stuff. So how did you wind up in, uh, I mean, I, I, I sort of have gleaned from the web that you've lived all over the world, uh, you know, that you had kind of a peripatetic childhood, but how did you wind up in Berlin as an adult? Um. Let's see. Well, I had a really good New Year's here, and um, I was, yeah, I was traveling to Germany with an ex-boyfriend who was German, and we <clears throat> went and saw his parents and or his mom in Munich, and then we came to Berlin, and usually I just, I hate New Year's, or I don't know, I always look forward to it and then despise it as it's going on, but that year I just had a really good time. Um, like we broke into, well, we didn't break into, there was a guy who's, um, he was an intern at an investment banking place or something. And so he took us up to the office and we ran around and spun around on office chairs and drank a lot and then went to a house party that was really fun and everyone was really nice. Um, and it wasn't that kind of deflated feeling you mostly get on New Year's. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, so, and I just, I don't know, I was living in Ann Arbor at the time, I'd finished grad school a year before, and was teaching and dog-sitting a ton, and just kind of felt like, I don't know, it was time to, to go somewhere else, so then I talked to my um, boyfriend of the time into spending the summer in Berlin, uh, and we ended up breaking up that summer, but I stayed in Berlin. Uh, and then he went back to Ann Arbor. Okay, so I'm fascinated by this because you're getting to like, you know, I love the idea of being able to live somewhere overseas. And it's, you know, I, I think that like it's both, it, it seems kind of like simultaneously um, less difficult than one might imagine and maybe as difficult as one might imagine <laughs> logistically. Because, you know, you just, you buy the ticket, you take the ride, suddenly you're there. But then like when it comes to the actual logistics of, uh, citizenship and making a living and trying to integrate yourself, you know, like uh, I'm imagining you speak the language or at least now you do uh, at a functional level. But what about, 
being able to support yourself? Like, are you able to find work there? Do you, are you able to like find work back in the States that supports you in some sort of like uh internet-y way or? <laughs> internet-y way. <laughs> uh, well, it, it was hard. It was really hard at the beginning. Um, and it's still challenging, I would say. Um, and yeah, so I think at the very beginning I had an internet-y kind of job that helped and then I got um, a scholarship to, yeah, it was like a fellowship for a year at a university in town just to kind of hang out and supposedly come up with um, a project at the end, but it was very loose. And uh, so that was great. So it was just sort of money to be interested in things in Berlin for a year. How did, you, then, how, how did you land that? You just applied? Well, I think that's because I was also trying to get a Fulbright, and um, the woman who was helping me with Fulbright stuff uh, took me aside and was like, look, if you don't get the Fulbright, there's this other opportunity um, for journalists. And it was great. And I mean, I slightly exaggerated my journalistic identity, probably, for the thing. A lot of it was a little bit exaggerated on the application, along with my German skills, but... Um, but it was it was a really awesome opportunity because then I was able to stay in Berlin and um, I ended up you know kind of like writing fiction and not totally doing the journalism thing that year. But um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So now, how long have you been there for? Six years. Yeah. Oh, holy shit! Are you like? Are holy you... shit! It's the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Are you are you, are you planting roots? Because I like I had. I didn't have quite as uh, peripatetic of a childhood as you did, but I, uh, I did move a little bit, and I now find myself mm -hmm. as as an adult thinking like I really want to have like a home base. I'd love to like have mm. have a. I mean, not that I don't want to travel, but I like the idea of having like a a place that's home. Yeah, Do yeah, you... definitely. Yeah, I mean, I actually I wish I had a more ready and simpler answer. I think that. On the one hand, I, I just like I feel so proud of myself for not moving for six years. <laughs> um, it feels like such a big accomplishment. But then sometimes I feel like, wait a second, why, why did I choose to settle in a place, you know, or call home a place where I'm routinely sort of like stumbling over the language, or I get sent tax forms, and tax forms are confusing anyways. But you know, just like literally having no idea what to do with them. Like not even knowing like, is this a like, thanks for paying your taxes. This is like, you're being summoned to court because you like <laughs> fucked up a bunch of stuff letter, you know, and just there's things where, um, I was also in a florist shop the other day and I was getting flowers and, um, I wanted some like just kind of reeds or, I don't know, some green stuff to go with the flowers. And so she took me back there and I said, like, I'd love to have something that kind of just looks like it's from a field. And she said, this is a flower shop, not a field. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I, there's like a German directness where that was not a surprising an answer from her. But just on certain days, that can really feel like it just slays me. Yeah. Um, and I mean... I also have to say that, you know, Berlin is great and I really love the people here and 
that's not, I don't at all mean that that's representative of, you know, how everyone's walking around all the time, but there's something of that that's like happens every now and then. Definitely. Is, is it an easy, I mean, is it an easy place to integrate into? Cause I think some cities are, are warmer in that way than others. Some cultures. Uh, I think it's, I think it's easy in a way, in an initial kind of way, you know, because there's so many people flocking to Berlin now and it's got <clears throat> this kind of, there's just something in the air where everyone's excited to be there and, and it, but it also has such a sort of complicated history and you really have to engage with it. So it doesn't feel like, Mm, I don't know, but well, you're on, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, cause I have friends who've lived in France and like, you know, people, mm -hmm. people who've done the Paris thing and, uh, you get there and obviously it's like this, this international hub and there's people from all over the world and it's, there's a million tourists and yeah. it's not hard to like show up as a foreigner and, you know, find uh, an apartment and, um, you know, integrate yourself on a, in a basic way, but like actually getting, to know yeah. people who are from there and feeling like you're, you're kind of at least somewhat close to one of them. That's a different story. You know, it's more of like, totally. a, it's kind of a cloid, you know, this P Parisian culture from what I understand can be, um, like closed off, you know, uh, yeah. in a, in a, in a way that, you know, might surprise, you know, but I don't know what it's like in Berlin. Yeah. I mean, I think I felt like it took me about three years. Um, to feel like I really had close friends, both German and non-German. And one thing that really helped was joining this um, singing group, which is, uh, it's actually not, I mean, no one's good. It's most, no, there are some good people. I'm just not one of them. But it's like, it's kind of set up like a piano bar at this one girl's house, and she has a piano in her kitchen. And then um, it's, yeah, there are these binders full of sheet, sheet music, and then everyone brings wine and gummy bears. And then, um, yeah, we sing, like, Lionel Richie songs and old German <laughs> rounds. <laughs> I tried to introduce a Bonnie Raitt song that went nowhere. Whoa. Everyone hated it. How did you get, um, how did you get in, hooked into this thing? Uh, well, my um, ex-husband's friend was part of it and so uh yeah she kind of brought me in which was great and i think yeah that's kind of that's how it happened okay. is that slow um yeah okay so wait so you you had a boyfriend when you first moved to germany yeah and then that ended and then you stayed in berlin and then you met your husband your first husband there or your ex-husband yeah i mean it's we just we actually just got separated so um oh, i'm sorry yeah, it's okay. It's recent. It's okay. Yep. But are, do you yeah. have do you have citizenship? No, which is um, I don't know. It always feels kind of unfair to me because I was born in Germany, um, in Hamburg, and uh, I have a German last name. Okay, yeah. there's not there's <laughs> not a ton of reasons, but but being born here seems kind of like well, and um, being married there. It would seem to yeah. like, would, wouldn't you get like some sort of, cause I'm just like, I'm like thinking, man, at least you have the EU citizenship and you can like move around and work, but you don't get that. No, I don't. I also thought I kind of showed up there after I got married thinking like they would, 
you know, throw their arms around me and welcome me and be like, yeah, just give me a bunch of stuff, including citizenship. Um, but no, they were like, well, I think they were like, now we won't like pester you. You can be here for, I think it was four year, a four year visa or something like that. So wait a minute, wait um, a minute. You, you, uh, cause you married a German guy. Yeah. Okay, but like if you if you if a, a foreigner marries and I don't even know how this works in the states, but if somebody who's not an American citizen marries an American, there's they become citizens, don't they, or they get their green card? Yes, but um, yeah, I think I think so, but it's not. That's why I was so shocked. That's why I thought you know that that was sort of like a natural conclusion of everything, um, but no, it wasn't. But you're allowed to, I mean, clearly you're allowed to stay on. They haven't kicked you out yet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe what's, that's what the letter was about that I got, that I was thinking was about taxes. Well, better to ignore <laughs> it. Gather your things and get the hell out of here. <laughs> so do you have, I mean, do you have a sense like, I mean, I guess I, I never really got like a clear answer. Like, do you think that you're going to be there for a while? Or are you Are you starting to like... Uh, say maybe I should move on to something else or check out another country over here or go back home or. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I think a little bit, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but one is that I ran track my junior year in high school and I was not really good at it. And I tried to like be a sprinter and that didn't work. And so they just kept moving me back, you know, until I was long distance. And and I just kept doing it the whole year. And sometimes what I'm trying to say is that sometimes I just like do things and stick them out because I get really involved in the sort of um, like doing it well and um, doing it responsibly and kind of making some progress in it, you know. And sometimes I have to stop and just and really think about um, my choice to settle here and just because it's definitely, it's not an easy thing, you know, it's especially if you want to really be integrated, it's a constant grappling with, um, yeah, you, your German self and how much of that self is you. And I get a lot of pleasure and gratification out of feeling like I've developed that self to a point where it's really close to my sort of American self. But, um, and my book actually came out in German, Home Leaves, um, before, it's coming out next week in the States, but it came out here in March uh, in German, the translation. And so I've been reading from it and doing Q&As and interviews and stuff, and that's been an incredible opportunity and um, has made me feel even more belonging here. Well, how how has the reception been in Germany? It's been good. It's been good. Yeah. I mean, people seem really interested and, um, is it, is it, is it a more literate culture? I mean, I know the tendency, especially for like educated Americans or whatever, is to have this idea of Europe as being like more culturally refined. Like, is that, Uh is that true? Do you feel that? Um, well, I've definitely felt like all of my audiences so far have been, yeah, extremely engaged. Um, extremely interested and um, I, I I mean it's also true that like for readings um, you know I just read at a bookstore and they were like so like 35 to 40 minutes that's like about right 
And then I was asking about it in the States and they're like, yeah, it's more like 15 minutes. Oh, and God. so <laughs> you were supposed to, you were supposed to read for 35 minutes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I would be crawling up the walls, but I'd like, this is me and my Americanism maybe, but like, you no, know, but yeah, but that's what I'm saying. There's like more, um, of an understanding, you know, that, that you're in it for the long haul. And, that, and also people pay for readings here, pay to go to readings. They'll pay like $15. Yeah. Um, hear someone read for 35 minutes or more. Well, so, see, I have a buddy who's a poet. He's been on like four or five European tours, like spoken, mm-hmm. spoken word tours. And, and I mean, like mm-hmm. they're, they're full. I mean, he doesn't, he's not living high on the hog and like staying at the four seasons, <laughs> but like, you know, he's getting his travel expenses paid for and a little bit of a yeah. per diem. And it's like all this cultural money that's floating around in Europe doesn't seem to exist in the States for such things, no. but he's been to Europe yeah. and like had these like, you know, like, you know, six to 12 week journeys where he's like going, from, yeah. going from town to town and performing and like often performing in front of like fairly large crowds that pay good money to see him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. Well, that's really exciting. And then in terms of like your integration into, um, you know, your German life and trying to kind of build up the German self, as you put it, like one of the things that strikes me about being an ex an expat, uh, and especially an expat who's a writer is the. Uh, is the language aspect because mm-hmm. you know what I've what I've found when I'm in uh, countries where I can't speak the language and particularly for extended periods of time where I'm really interacting with uh, you know natives or whatever is that uh, you know when you when you're not fluent in the language or you're not like really highly functional uh, yeah. you you lose that third dimension of self and that can be really de- yeah. it can be really demoralizing especially for some yeah. for somebody who kind of fancies themselves. Uh, uh, a professional communicator, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really true. And I think, um, I mean, that was one reason I did spend like a lot of time when I first got here, uh, really trying to become as fluent as possible. Also because I, yeah, I grew up, um, in Shanghai and Singapore. We moved there when I was 12 and in some ways, I really felt like I was living in a kind of expatriate bubble, um, and it was something that I didn't want to do in in Berlin, and sort of wanted to, yeah, have a really different approach. And then, of course, you know, um, being in a relationship with someone who's German, and you know, we would speak German and English just kind of mixed all the time, so that definitely helped as well but um it was it was funny because i gave a an interview um in german on the radio a couple weeks ago and it went really well i was really nervous about it but it it went great but then afterwards they asked me to sign um like a guest book or to sign a book for them too and so i wrote um thanks for the great conversation and then i I looked at it and I was like, oh shit, I spelled conversation wrong. And so then, and I just was like, what's the German spelling of that? And then I, and then I did the equivalent of like, kind of like crossing out the like T-I-O-N and writing S-H-U-N. I mean, that's what I would have done in English, you know, like conversation, just kind of sounding it out in my head. And then, uh, because I, the thing I corrected was wrong. Like I'd done I'd done it right the first time. And then it it just like, it was like a nine year old mistake, you know, like 
conversation. Everyone knows how to spell conversation. You know, it was so embarrassing. And I just like, and that was one moment where you go from feeling like this kind of like, oh yeah, I'm like promoting my book in another language. It's so badass. And then being like, I want to disappear. (laughs) (laughs) And that's their memory, you know, like the tape or the, like the interview will fade, but then that like conversation, like S H U N is just going to be there forever. Um, but that, you know, that people have to be somewhat understanding and like, it's impressive too. Like when it comes to trying to kind of integrate and become fluent, uh, is that you sort of have to fight for it because I'm assuming that most of the German people, you know, speak English or a lot of them do. And so mm-hmm. sometimes they mm-hmm. don't, sometimes they don't let you speak the, the native language you'll, or you'll start fumbling and they'll just cut right into English. And you're like, I can't, yeah. I can't learn if you don't let me. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. That, that does happen a lot. Although, it's also the case that, you know, my really, really close friends here speak such amazing English that we, yeah, we speak English a lot too. Like if we're out with mostly Germans or if most of the group is German, then everyone will speak German. But um, if it's just one-on-one with them, I often speak English. And just, and I, yeah, and I, at some point I just like found my peace with that because it was about the friendship and connecting more than it was sort of just you know, feeling proud that I'd had a German conversation. Right. And, and what about like, uh, getting the, cause like, you know, the other thing that's enviable about living over there is that you're in such close proximity to all these different countries and cultures. So like, have you gotten to do cool, uh, like travel and had little side, like satellite journeys into other places? Yeah, definitely. Um, let's see where, I mean, yeah, my ex-husband has also grew up in Romania um, so we spent a lot of time there and then, I mean, okay, this doesn't really answer your question, but I also like the way when you were asking about how I make my living over here, I teach, um, sometimes for Hong Kong university. Uh, and so I go over there, um, and yeah, teach usually two months a year in Hong, in Hong Kong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, they have an MFA program, um, a great MFA program that's in English. How did you get How and, did you get hooked up with that? <laughs> it was really, yeah, it was really, really lucky. Um, I was interning at Time Magazine in Hong Kong in between um, my MFA years, so for the summer, and um, my professor Professor, my former professor, Gish Jen, um, who I'd had as an undergrad, was teaching at the MFA program. And so we connected, and then she introduced me to the director, and then the director said, like, oh, yeah, I'll keep your name in mind um, if we're ever looking for someone or something like that. And then, um, yeah, three years later, I got a call, (laughs) or maybe it was an email. And so she was, yeah just asking if I was interested in advising, which is done over email a lot, and then um, meeting with the students in person too, and then teaching a workshop, which is, you know, um, for at least a couple months. And they put you up over there, and it's a good situation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. It's really great. It's at this old um, British ladies club called the Helena May um, that's, 
uh, yeah, a real interesting kind of relic of Hong Kong colonial times in itself. Um, and they have rooms there that you can stay in and then you can walk through the sort of dining hall and there's all these old British ladies playing mahjong and um, being fierce with each other while drinking Earl Grey. Wow, that sounds interesting. You got to so uh, do me a favor, give the director my name. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell him if he needs like if he needs a, a, a literary podcaster. Yeah. I can come up. <laughs> I kid. Cuz every MFA has to have a literary podcast. I'm on the head of the curve. It's coming. It's not there yet. <laughs> um Okay, so like the, I want to get into like like how you grew up in this like because you it seems like you you know your your childhood and like the the globe trotting nature of it sort of has set the stage for your adult life. But uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm interested in knowing why. Like, why were you living all over the world? Where did you live? What did your folks do? And yeah, um, well, my dad is a businessman. He works for a company that sells valves and flow meters. So he got an engineering degree and then went to business school. Um, and then that company sort of moved him and us all over the place. Um, so, yeah, I was born in Hamburg, and then we moved to Philadelphia. Um, and then we moved to London and then Atlanta. And I was in Atlanta for elementary school and then Minneapolis for six months, and then Shanghai for uh, two and a half years, and then Singapore for high school. Wow. Was there a place that was your favorite? Do you have like a a nostalgia for one in particular? Well, I feel like um, I I have a lot of nostalgia for Shanghai because it was just so impactful and sort of changing. You know, it was the early 90s, so, yeah, McDonald's wasn't there. There were no skyscrapers. It was, um, it, China was just opening, um, and it was a really intense, um, yeah, it was just very intense to go over there at that time, and people would touch your hair and, you know, grab you and uh, yank you into pictures, uh, and I played... So I said I had said before that we were kind of in an American bubble, um, but the one exception to that sort of was that I played on a Chinese basketball team, um, and my dad I think he'd gone out to dinner with someone in his company, and then they were kind of doing this um, uh, like you know trying to honor each other by sort of exchanging compliments or favors or things like that and so the guy said like i can get your daughter onto the best basketball team in shanghai something like that um which turned out to be terrible news for me because you know these girls had been playing together since they were i even heard someone say i don't know where i got this but that you know they had like picked tall parents out or like selected you know gone up to tall couples and like recruited them for like sending their children to the school later or something like that. Um, and so these, yeah, these girls were totally in sync. They were amazing. Uh, even though they shot with two hands, which, you know, in the States, if someone shoots with two hands, it's like pretty sure that they're not, not good at basketball, but these girls, yeah, they kicked ass. And so I got there and, um, 
yeah, I, I couldn't understand what anyone was saying ever because um, they spoke Shanghainese and I was learning some Mandarin in school, but that it's a totally different dialect. Um, and so I would just watch and try to follow, but half the time I was like running to the wrong end of the cord and <laughs> everyone was laughing. And the name for me on the team was Buntan, which is stupid egg. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, strangely though, like I, <laughs> I don't know, like I do have nostalgia for, I, I feel like, you know, when you get over there and then you're confronted with such a different culture, you just, there's nothing to do but, but stare. I mean, as we were being stared at, I was staring back. And I think um, feeling so sort of other. It's as a writer too. I've been reading this book, this great book by Hajin called "The Writer's Migrant." Um, and yeah, when you're when you're really on the periphery, or when you feel sort of like an outsider, as most writers do in some way or another. But I think it just turns you into an observer, um, and I think that happened very sharply during our time there yeah i was gonna say you know because it seems like the the perfect like formative experience for a writer in a way <laughs> and i wonder i wonder if like when you think about yourself uh and you like if you could imagine like what if your childhood had involved no moves and you had just grown up in atlanta or philadelphia um do you think you'd still be a writer or do you think that the 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 constant moving and like the culture shock and whatnot that you went through uh somehow caused you to be one I definitely, I do think I would still be a writer. I mean, I was like, you know, a precocious kind of annoying kid who would announce to everyone that I was going to be a writer from the time I was eight or something like that. It was either writer or country singer. <laughs> um, <laughs> How did you get into Were you into country music as a kid? I was so into country music, and I know you hate country music. Cause well, I, I should know. Listen, I like I can listen to old school country music until I, you know the cows come home. To continue the metaphor, but um, <laughs> or, you know, you know what I'm saying. But like, you I, mean like, like Johnny Cash and stuff? Like I mean, even further back too, like old Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers. Yeah. Like I really, yeah, but you know, you know what, Brad? Like that has dignity. That's that's a kind of you know, like if you're really gonna like country. I, I know this whole argument, you know, that that's, that was when country had soul. But I think if you're really going to put your dignity on the line, you have to say, like, I love early 90s pop country. Um, I love, like, Tracy Yearwood and Randy Travis, um, all those guys. And that, that was definitely true for me. That was, yeah, I was see, I did, it, it just sounds different. I mean, the pop country that you hear on the radio in contemporary yeah. times, like just sounds different. But when I hear that old, it's just, you know what it feels like? It feels like, like contemporary country music feels um, a lot more divorced from traditional American roots music than those earlier recordings and those earlier artists do. And I don't know if that's just like a trick to my, um, you know, ear, you know, I have a limited perspective on all of this but it's just so mm. i think that might be part of what it is something about it just sounds better to me yeah no i know what you're saying i mean i think the thing i really liked was always the storytelling and mm -hmm. i think that that's true um in pop country as well and i'm totally addicted to nashville right now that that tv show so. <laughs> 
Are, are you a, are you a Dirks Bentley fan by any chance? Are you into him? I don't know if you're into. Uh uh-uh. no, I don't know him. Oh, okay, he went to college with some friends of mine. I mean, he went to Vanderbilt okay. with some friends of mine. He's like a, a country star. I sort of know him, but not not that. Oh, well. cool. No, I mean my country my country music when I was really obsessed with it was when I was in Atlanta, which was yeah. Let's see, what was that? So like late eighties to early nineties. What was and, your uh, What was your town in Atlanta? What suburb of Atlanta? Uh, I lived in Uptown, Virginia Highlands, so right. kind of in the city. Okay. Um, but everyone, also, I have to say, everyone in Atlanta hated country music. All my friends hated country, so being in the South didn't even help. Well, so who's your, who's your like supreme country hero? <laughs> um. Well, I really like this woman named Mary Chapin Carpenter. Okay. She's a great songwriter. I mean, her early stuff, I think, is the best. Um, yeah, but I love her, and, like, Lucinda Williams is great. Yeah. And... Do you like Laura Cantrell? Oh, I don't know her. Yeah, she's she's sort of loose. I mean, she does, I don't think she has quite the, the, the powerful voice that Lucinda, because I love Lucinda. Yeah. I can listen to Lucinda, yeah. but uh, I think her name's Laura Cantrell. I might be misremembering. That's a great it. name to say with a southern accent. Too. Yes, it, it is. And she's Cantrell. Got, she's got... <laughs> She's got this song called "the The Whiskey Makes You Sweeter," which is uh, <laughs> one. But you got to hear it; it's one of my all-time favorite country songs. Ooh, just, I can't wait to. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So, like to get back to like the moving around mm. um, and the childhood stuff. I mean, I can understand how um, intellectually stimulating and it's just cool. I think to have that kind of global perspective, uh, it's a hell of an education that you can't replicate you know, just by reading encyclopedias or watching like the travel network, obviously. Yeah. Um, so you got like, you had a unique childhood, unique education, but, Mm. uh, you know, I remember what it was like to be a kid and particularly an adolescent and, you know, you want roots and you want friends and, (laughs) you know, moving can be, um, really traumatic, but I guess if you do, if you do it frequently enough, maybe it becomes normal. Like for like people who are army brats or whatever, like did, did it get, was it a normalized thing for you by the time you were an adolescent or did you find yourself like rebelling and being pissed off at your parents because they kept, you know, packing up and taking you to another strange place or? Well, no, I mean, I, the thing was like when we were in Atlanta, like I, I, I was eager to move again. You know, I think as a kid, it really seems like an adventure um, and something that's cool that sort of singles you out and. So my dad, when he told us that we were, you know, moving again, he brought down a globe and my sister and I tried to guess um, where, where we were going. And, you know, like just we were looking all over at like Pakistan, Hawaii, and I don't know how long it took us to land on China, but then we were so excited. Um, I didn't, and I don't even know what our associations were. At the time, you know, like we liked going to Chinese restaurants, you know, like it was <laughs> Panda Panda Express. It was just like, you know, or whatever. Like all those lanterns, you know, it's hard to say what seemed great about it or like what was informing just this sort of, um, yeah, huge, huge excitement. Because I was also like a shy kid and always wanted to feel safe and secure. And so it's funny to me, like I hated camp. I hated camp 
so much. Although I always looked forward to camp. Um, so there was that juxtaposition, you know, or sort of like, um, uh, anyways. Well, yeah. So, but it's, so, sort, it's sort of like, sort of like looking forward to new year's, but then hating it once it's there. Right. It's like a depressing <laughs> recurring <laughs> conversation. <laughs> I get it though. I sort of have the same thing. Like I'm all about, I'm all about the eaves. I'm all about the thing before the thing, which I've, I've talked about on this show. You know, it's like the Christmas Eve is way better than Christmas day. New Year's Eve is way better than New Year's day. Like, you know, the anticipation and like the bill. Yeah. Always better. And maybe it's something too, although I might just be trying to get out of this, but as a fiction writer, you have really specific visions of things. You know, you've got all the details worked out of like exactly how you're going to be like best friends with all the counselors and like what it's going to be like going down a waterfall. Now I'm talking about camp, not China. But, <laughs> or, um, or New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> I want that New Year's yeah, Eve. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, when, yeah, China, Shanghai was, it was hard, but it's, you know, it was kind of like, um, all of the things that are uncomfortable about puberty anyways just felt exaggerated there because it's already uncomfortable as a girl, you know, to, like I was, I'm like 5'9", and I was 5'9 when I was 12. I had a huge growth spurt, you know, when I was little. And so I got over there and I was taller, definitely taller than all the guys in my class, but also taller than most Chinese men. Um and that's just like deeply uncomfortable. And you're, and, and you're like the, this blonde thing in, in Shanghai and, you know, yeah. people, but I mean, it yeah. must, have, must have been kind of, it's kind of like you're a rock star. People are pulling you into photographs. <laughs> like, um, yeah, but it's, it's more like someone who has like super long fingernails or it's just like, whoa, what is that? You yeah, know, it's like yeah. less like, I love your music <laughs> and more like, you're, you're freaky. A, you're, you're a freak, right. <laughs> let's, let's take a picture with a freak. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I don't mean to like, I mean, I feel like I'm going to turn a corner into like dark stuff, but I do have to ask because your book addresses this. Um, but you, there was a trauma in your childhood with the loss of your sister. Yeah. Uh, like when did that happen? That happened our first year, no, our second, at the beginning of our second year in Singapore. So we moved there when I was 14 and then... Blair died. She's, she's two years younger than me when I was 15, and she was 13. So was this after Shanghai? or After Shanghai. So, mm-hmm. you, so you go to Singapore. What happened? Uh, she had an undetected heart problem that we didn't know about. And so, yeah, it was just, we were actually, she was amazing at soccer. So she was uh, in eighth grade, but she was practicing with the high school team because she was going to play JV that year. And, um, she just collapsed and, um, yeah, got rushed to the hospital and died that night. I just like, I'm I just like touch my own heart. I'm like, Oh my God. Like to Mm. not, to not know, you know, that you that's so, uh, awful and scary. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, um, formative obviously like super devastating uh she was your only sibling mm-hmm. so how, how did yeah. you, how did your family cope because i've seen um families go through loss like this and it seems like it goes one of two ways like a lot of times families 
sort of disperse. Like the grief is so big that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like it's communication is stifled and people grieve in different ways and at different speeds. And, you know, it can lead to like dissolution. And then other times I've seen families like come together, like really tightly. And I'm Mm. like, did you have, I mean, is that an accurate appraisal? I don't know. Maybe it was yours somewhere in the middle or. Well, I guess for us, it, yeah, I'm trying. I'm not good at science. I was trying to think of a metaphor where something contracts and expands and contracts and expands. Does the universe do that? I don't know. But like, <laughs> I think it might. <laughs> um, I do but, personally. <laughs> yeah, it's like a Brad. Yes. Where um, no, but what I mean by that is that I think we've gone through phases of that um, where. I think initially we kind of all came a lot closer and we also spent like a month in the States right afterwards. And we were thinking about maybe even moving back to the States. And then it just seemed like it would be way too sad to just go suddenly to a place where no one knew Blair and just be, you know, that I don't know, like that no one would see her face when they saw us. You know, that would just be too, too sad. Right. And so um, we stayed in Singapore. And I think, yeah, I mean, grief just isolates you in a lot of ways. I felt really isolated from everyone else in high school because it's just like, you know, high school issues suddenly become so kind of laughable. And so um, well, like they're nothing. Yeah. And I mean, it's like an, it's, it's a really interesting point because. Uh, there are, I mean, and grief is a, a prominent example and probably, you know, one of the more intense, if not the most intense example of like the kinds of emotional experiences and human experiences that can be isolating. But, um, I think about this, you know, like what's the right thing to do? Like, not that there's one right thing, but like generally speaking, you know, when you're in the presence of somebody who's grieving, uh, a loss, you know, I, it, it seems like instinctively, uh, or intuitively that the right thing to do is like to go, go to them, ask them how they're doing, uh, mm. you know, try to offer support. And I think maybe initially that happens, you know, like surrounding the funeral and like the immediate, uh, time after the loss. But a lot of times what happens, I think, is that people get afraid and that, that contact sort of recedes. Is that like this, mm. the source of the isolation that you're talking about or the sense of it? You know, it's like, it was kind of a blur. It's sort of hard for me to remember, like, because I think I was shutting a lot of people out. Like, I just started going to, like, my favorite teacher's, um, like, room for lunch just for a while to kind of, because I just couldn't take the cafeteria. But that wasn't, and no one, I don't think anyone was kind of like, oh, that's weird. I think it's like everyone knew I needed that, and there was just this sort of, like, space that allowed me to do that. And then like a year later, um, that, that changed and was different. And I was, you know, with, with friends again, but I think when you're talking about the right way to do it, I think it's really good to kind of, yeah, to kind of sort of keep up the conversation. But I think the worst thing is to sort of be prescriptive or to say like, Oh, you know, but at least, yeah. You know, she was so happy while she was here and, you know, she just lived such a great life or she's an angel or like <laughs> so much bullshit, yes. you know. But, you know, um, it makes me it makes me laugh in both directions because like, uh, 
you know, I can totally empathize and understand with the perspective of like, please don't say that. But then I can, mm. I can also empathize with the person who is like terrified of saying the wrong thing. And it's just trying to be, yeah. you know, just trying to like find some way to like put a bandaid on it or make it somehow better. And just in the process of doing that fucks things up or like, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like there's something sort of grimly funny about that. That's just awful. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I mean, I, the, the novel is a lot about those moments, you know, or like people, people privately kind of like grappling with grief, but also there's so much humor to be mined in just the awkwardness of those initial encounters. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of a grim humor in some ways, but, um, I don't know. And I mean, to some degree, I encounter that now too a little bit, although it's very, very different, but you know, after a breakup, um, people just like, there's the, it's just any, any time around loss, I think, you know, people struggle to know what to say and then like, um, want to jump to some sort of like positive thing sometimes. Um, and I think in both instances, it's pretty, pretty ill-fated. Yeah. But I think like, you know, if you're the person who's uh, suffering uh, or uh, feeling isolated, like if there is a way, like if, if a person is just like kind of consistently there and yeah. even if you don't have anything to say, like, I think that's the right, yeah. that's the right way to go. Cause it's, you know, yeah. it sucks to be isolated, you know? And, and, yeah. and, then, and yeah. then, and then it's like, if you really do need somebody to talk to, or you just want somebody to like in the room with you, then it's like, how do I ask for this? You know, I don't have the energy to yeah. like, you know, then I feel like an asshole for being like, Hey, will you come sit with me? We want to come down into my grief hole and like hang out. <laughs> come into my cave. Don't mind the dripping shit. Uh, you know, there'll only be a few hours. We'll just sit here. You get silence. used to the clamminess. <laughs> nice. Um, so, okay. So that has, that had to have, uh, a profound psychological impact and, um, you know, how, like, how did it change you? You know, you said that a lot of the, the kind of, um, normal things that occupy or preoccupy high school students, you know, started to seem trivial and silly. Um, you know, like how did, uh, how did you behave like, and, and how did it, you know, uh, color your behavior as you, you know, moved on in your life? Yeah, I mean, I th it changed pretty rapid. I mean, I guess, you know, it's true that people talk about stages of grief or whatever, but I think for a, a few months I felt weirdly kind of like invincible. And it's, it's so strange to say that, but it maybe it was because I wasn't afraid of death at all myself or like the worst thing had happened to me. And so I just felt like nothing could touch me. And I'm scared of heights, actually, and I would just go up to the edge of, you know, if I would go on a hike, I could go anywhere suddenly, and I wouldn't be afraid. Like, like, and, like to what extent? Like, I mean, like, truly standing, like, toes at the edge, looking over, like, no problem? Mm, like, like, kind of. Like Jeff, yeah. Br like Jeff Bridges and Fearless? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen that. Oh, okay. But he, su um, he survives a plane crash and then, like, thinks he's untouchable and, like, you know, it's basically... Yeah. But, uh, well, that's interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, but I was actually, I mean, I was thinking about this a while ago while I was writing something that Blair, my sister, was like, she was the one who wasn't afraid of heights, you know? So sometimes I wonder, too, if it felt kind of like this strange new sharing of her perspective or, I don't know. It was weird. But anyways, it like, it 
my fear of heights came back. It was only a few months that felt like that. Um, and then I think, and you know, and all the kind of petty high school stuff came back too. It was like, I had a crush on someone. I like hated how my shirt looked. Um, I was so embarrassed that when I was in PE, my face turned red and I had horrible experiments with foundation. You know, it was just like all of that stuff, um, became, it's just, you know, it's like the perspective is fleeting. Cause like, I feel Mm -hmm. like, I feel like in the aftermath of losses that I've experienced in in the immediate time surrounding, and then in the, you know, the weeks after there is a kind of like strange clarity. Yeah. Um, a lot of the bullshit peels away and you know what I I mean? Not to keep referencing pop culture in the context of this, but it makes me think of that movie, funny people, the Judd Apatow movie where I haven't seen that yet. Uh, well, you know, like Adam Sandler gets diagnosed with a, with a terminal illness, but then like Mm -hmm. miraculously it goes away essentially. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so suddenly he's living his life as though he's got a death sentence and then suddenly it's lifted. And so he has this period where it's like, you know, he's clear. And then, yeah. then eventually like the, the, sh- the shroud comes back and you kind of, yeah. you kind of go back, but I think that's really true. And it's not something that gets articulated much is that, uh, you know, the clarity is rarely permanent and, you know, you can have this kind of like uh, monumental bad thing happen that obviously shifts so much in, in your life and, and so much in you internally, but like ultimately the human condition kind of comes creeping back in. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I think the opposite is true too, that you can think that you're not over it at all because I always really wanted to puke when anyone said anything close to that, but that you have a certain distance from it or perspective and that there's so much of it that's um, determining your thoughts or your your being or I mean I feel like that in some ways I think writing the book helped too but that there was a lot about her death that you know I didn't start dealing with until years and years and years later and so that it's like both. what like what mm, I think I think I felt like a lot of guilt about surviving her because she was always I mean she was like uh, this person who kind of was never, she was never hesitant. She always like jumped headlong into things. She um, like would just, like if we had to go over something I really hated as a kid was going over to my parents' friends' houses because like adults always think that kids love to play with other kids even if they're strangers to each other, kind of, or don't know each other so well. Right. And I always found that unbearably awkward. You know, it's like a 9 or 10 or 8 or whatever year old to go over and then to instantly be expected to just, like, love hanging out with these kids and to have to do it the whole night. And Blair just, like, she loved that shit, and she would just, like, invent all the games, you know, that we would play for the rest of the night or whatever. And so in some ways, I think I felt like, because I was always the more reflective and kind of, um, I don't know, you know, shyer, more hesitant sister. Like, it just seemed so wrong that she was the one that died or like, I don't know. I think I also had been like really jealous of her too, in some ways for all of, that um 
just like fast and thinking. I mean, she was she was smart. I'm not <laughs> I'm making her sound like some kind of jock. So <laughs> just like <laughs> I had no clue. But she was, you know, I think I just like there were things that I envied, like any kind of sibling rivalry. And then it's just like what happens to all that when that person <clears throat> disappears, you know? And like um, I think there were ways that I just I yeah I don't know therapy helped. Yeah, well, I was going to say, what about, like, did you get spiritual or anything? Or were you spiritual to begin with? Did, did that come into play? Because that often does when uh, you experience a loss. So you see, I, mean, I mean, I don't know, when you're an adolescent, I guess, you know, when you're an adolescent, you do. But certainly as an adult, it seems like a natural time to sort of take stock and think about, like, why am I here and what the hell is I think, this? yeah, I did, like, an independent, I asked, like, my teacher, if I could do an independent study on the Tibetan book of dying or the dead or something. In high school? My senior year. Yeah, and then that was just a terrible idea because it was, like, <laughs> this really graphic stuff about, like, you know, corpses decomposing and, like, I don't know. It was, that was that was dumb. I listened to a lot of the Indigo Girls, um, <laughs> if you can call that. <laughs> Um, there was like, but a, no, I think of anything. They were big. The, you indigo, the indigo girls were super big in my like my high school class. There was like a group of girls who would like draw, <laughs> they would like draw on their blue jeans, on their acid wash blue jeans, and they would all sing and like harmonize to closer closer to fine or whatever. Of course they would. <laughs> oh man, that's so unfair. I was always at the wrong schools. <laughs> like in elementary school, I was just like getting no nobody like country music and in high school every all my friends thought the indigo girls sucked <laughs> <laughs> uh, you should have you should have been in indiana you would have been the leader of the pack <laughs> clearly yeah. so but the tibetan book of the dead was a no-go i've tried to pick that up it's not the easiest book in the world to like no you know, no it doesn't like you know the, this is what i find with a lot of spiritual books because i read a lot of that stuff is that uh, if you sift through enough of it, you start to really appreciate clarity. Uh, mm. Like so many, so much of it, it's like, it's either poorly written or just like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, tell me, tell me straight. I need some That's clear a great critique of religious tomes. It it's is like, though. It's like poorly written. Well, I think people who are, you know, people who are religious, uh, yeah. teachers and teachers in any, in any discipline, um, you know, the, the mark of mastery is not to say complex or simple things in complex ways. It's the other way around. I just, mm. I just said something about, uh, clarity and simplicity in a complex way, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? So are you arguing, are you saying that like the reason certain religions are bigger than others is because they wrote like thrillers for religious texts, like the equivalent of like they managed to like grab people's attention maybe i mean um, i mean I, I think well i think the you know i wasn't speaking... like the bible is like a dan brown thing yeah i mean whereas I, like I, the tibetan book of dying is like i don't know corman mccarthy well i th i think that i think that narrative definitely plays a role and like how easy it is to grasp that narrative and you mm. know i have uh, endless problems with like the uh you know, the traditional tales of uh, the big contemporary religions, they seem like fairy tales to me in a lot of ways. But mm. um, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, too. You know, I'm not totally discounting the teachings, but like I'm speaking more to just like, you know, people who are talking um, at the level of humanity about, yeah. you know, uh, like a more what's the word like real uh, realist approach to things. And yeah, I just like when somebody can really be 
incisive. It's a very difficult thing to write about. Um, yeah. specifically for that reason, I've tried it before and it's like, you can think, you know what you want to say, and then you sit down to say it. And it's, a, you know, the words elude in ways that like words, uh, like to a degree that is, you know, uh, seems, um, excessive, even for somebody who's struggled with fiction for years. Do you know what I'm saying? But what were you, you mean you were writing about it in a fictional context or you were trying nonfiction? Like, I mean, this is like a current project that I'm writing where I'm trying to like, Mm. you know, lay down what I actually think about things. And it's like, fuck, man, it's hard. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to drill down into it and to be clear without seeming, um, you know, uh, you know, pedantic or ridiculous, ridiculous. And yeah, well, I mean, I think I really admire writers like Cheryl Strayed or um, Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, who, who maybe Gilbert more than Strayed gets flack for um, maybe writing like too populist, but I've, I don't find that with her actually. And I think because, you know, I mean, it's hard to say like is, you know, when we start writing around that territory is part of our censor just that we don't want to sound precious or, that we're scared we're going to come off sounding cheesy and it's such a sort of ironic scathing intellectual culture when it comes to religion and then you don't want to get lumped in some camp, some like, you know, either like yoga camp or, um, (laughs) or a kind of, um, you know, overly enthusiastic, uh, vacation Bible school type camp. Right. Um, so it's, and, funny, it's funny that you bring up both of those writers. I like both of those writers, and they get maligned. Good, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, no, I'm into it. I think they're because I mean, they they're doing what I'm talking about pretty well, and like they're both they both have yeah. really I think they both have really good chops as writers. Like I, I think that yeah. a lot of times it's just the success, and it's you know I see the same thing with like Jonathan Franzen. You can often tie, um, you know, any kind of like negative. Uh, stereotyping or backlash or whatever to an, a book sales. It's just, I mean, I know it's not the whole story, but a lot of it's just jealousy. Mm. I think a lot of it's yeah, jealousy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. You get successful he, enough and mm. it's going to happen. Yeah, no, but I think, you know, those writers and some others too, I just love the thought space that they kind of encourage me to go to or that... Um, because it's it's rare and it's also it it feels like a really compassionate um interesting space and i think that um like i grew up going to sunday schools and what, then i think especially pardon what like what religion uh well i mean yeah we went to a presbyterian church in atlanta my mom grew up baptist in mississippi and my dad Lutheran in Ohio, so that was somehow the compromise. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, we didn't go to church in Shanghai because it was out, uh, not allowed. And then um, in Singapore, it just got really painful to go to church after Blair died. And so I am not. I I feel like. There is a real, I, I don't feel kind of satisfied with just like nothing, you know, I still feel like there are things that I really like contemplating and thinking about, but it just, maybe especially in America, it's so kind of divisive and, 
just hard hard to find something that's like intellectually rigorous and um, kind. I don't know. I'm I'm losing words for it. No, I understand what you mean. It feels like there's like, you know, if you're an atheist, there's like a coldness to that. And and also like a dogmatic rigidity that mirrors like fundamentalist religion, (laughs) or Mm -hmm. at least from my perspective, where it's like, you know, I don't believe in, you know, it's like there's there's certainty. That's the thing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like resolutely uncertain and, you know, but at the same time, there are certain facts on the ground that I think, you know, are worth paying credence to. And, uh, it's a hard, it's a hard, uh, line to walk, but I think like, you know, some of the writers you were, we were talking about moments ago, maybe that's mm. what, maybe that's what they do. Maybe they satisfy intellectual, the, the, the desire for intellectual rigor, but also like a, a big heart and like an openness to, um, wonder and cosmic, yeah. you know, possibility. Yeah. I think sometimes I, still feel like I have some kind of like wrinkle in time theology, you know, because Madeline Langle was a deeply religious writer in some ways, but just extremely imaginative. And um, I read that book every year for a long time, you know, maybe up until a couple of years ago or something like that. I got to read it. You ever read Wrinkle in Time? I don't know. No, I don't know. There's a lot that I have. I've got problems. <laughs> like, wait, what You're was... gonna love it. Okay. Is can I read it to my daughter? What what is uh what's the age range for that? I think my dad read it to me when I was seven. Okay. So you can just like yeah, you can practice. She's on her. she's three. Mm-hmm. I'll just start her now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay, before I let you go, like I you know writing this book, you know you you alluded to this earlier with regard to you know, all that you went through with the loss of your sister and how the book obviously sprang, uh, at least partially from that. Um, you, you know, did, like, did you always know, I mean, I know you were saying you were going to be a writer when you were eight, but, um, like, when did you know, like, I've got a, I've got a book in me about this and how long did it take you to get from kind of that feeling to the, the printed page? I think I like I didn't want to write it for a long time. I didn't want to write something that was so autobiographical and I didn't I wrote mostly short stories for a long time and they were all about like Malaysian cross dressers and stuff like that. They weren't um <laughs> you know, per se about like uh an American family in Singapore undergoing this unimaginable loss and but I don't know. Then I just felt like it was, you know, that feeling. I'm sure you do. It was just like I kept circling back. It was the only thing that was sort of coming out. And I think um, what really helped um, was kind of going towards the funny, you know, like that felt like a key to making the material new, like what felt sort of like sodden to me. Um, and I did improv comedy in college, and I felt like that was a really helpful way to sort of see the funny in things or to go towards that. Um, not And sometimes to expose a greater truth, not because you just can't dwell in darkness, which, you know, is true of its own to a certain extent, but to kind of like to show the texture um, of the experience more. And... See, that was something I tried to explore a lot. Well, if you're writing, I mean, if you're working on a book length project and grief and loss is a a central theme, it's really hard to sustain, uh, 
you know, creative energy, just, just human emotional energy yeah. for the length of time it takes to write a book. If there is not, yeah. uh, some humor, I, I totally get yeah. that. You know, you, you, you have to have it. Otherwise you just, and you know what, if it wears you down, like, you know, imagine trying to read it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think about the reader when I'm working in that mode and, you know, my novel was grief related, so I get it. And at the same time, there are books that, uh, like wonderful books that are written that are really, heavy and i wonder at the at the writers who write those you know because yeah that's got yeah. that's got to be a grueling process yeah no that's true i think like i read ordinary people isn't it is it ordinary people yeah Do you know what i'm talking about a while ago and that's not funny but it's great it's really really well written and i think i had a friend too kayla rosen who was um you kind of like encouraged me to, to just, I think I'd been writing in like a really like solemn, like, um, this is so sad tone for a while. And she was like, great, you're funny. You gotta, gotta write this like funny too. And that, that was, that was also, like you said, like that gave me new curiosity for the material and energy. And, but yeah. And, and it's like, you, you know, it's like you don't want to do a disservice to the subject matter, you know. And I like I'm I, I feel like I'm smart enough to know. Mm -hmm. that of course, there can be funny stuff in a funeral, you know. Like I know that from my yeah. from human experience. But when you sit down to work creatively, sometimes it, maybe I can trick myself into thinking like, well, wait a minute, you know, you don't want to undercut the pathos with like too much slapstick humor, or then it just feels sure. disres disrespectful. So it's kind of a, it's a balancing act, like so much in writing. Yeah. No, I think you have your. It, it, yeah, it's a stomach thing a lot. It's a what? It's a stomach thing. It's like what you feel in your stomach. Oh right, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's a good. I think that's a, that's as good a place as any. To, that's as good a place as any to end on. So to everyone yeah. listening who might be struggling with their with their book, it's it's a stomach thing. Listen to your stomach. <laughs> Um, it's been really fun talking with you and, uh, congratulations on the book and best of luck in Berlin or, uh, wherever it is you're headed off to next. I really like talking with you. Yeah, it was great to talk to you too. Thanks, Brad. Okay. There you have it. That's Brittany Sonnenberg. Go get her novel. It's called Home Leave. It's available now from Grand Central Publishing. You can find Brittany online at BrittanySonnenberg.com. She's on the Twitter, where her handle is at Britt Sonnenberg, and she's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app, the, the official app of this podcast, available wherever apps are available. Uh, go get that. Download it to your device, and then you can uh, access the show and the full archives. Uh, sign up for premium right there within the app. It's the way to go. I highly recommend that. And... Uh, I should add as an addendum that I want to know uh, how this Paris guy, uh, the gentleman who wrote in, how does he live this life? Traveling all over the world. Living uh, near the pyramids in Egypt and speaking French to people. Is this a, a, like a trust fund? Are you in the CIA? What's happening here? Here's something I never understand about people uh, with trust funds. I know a couple of people with trust funds. And you know what they're not doing? They're not traveling all over the world. The fuck is up with that? <laughs> like you're just living in the suburbs and having like a, a fairly normal life. That's insulting to the rest of us. Get out there and start sailing around the world on a 50 foot sailboat. And then, uh, you know, pummel everybody with social media updates 
from abroad Instagrams so that the rest of us can live vicariously through you and quietly loathe you from our sad, impoverished lives of quiet desperation. Please remember that Joan of Arc was illiterate and that Kurt Vonnegut once checked into a hospital under the alias Kilgore Rosewater. That's it for now. Thanks again to Brittany Sonnenberg. Go get her novel. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for letting me invade your headspace. I will be back again uh, in just a few days, a couple days, two, three days, 72 hours, somewhere in there with another episode, another conversation with somebody who is uh, writing related, someone who has a, you know, a narrative bent or something. Until then, wherever you are, I hope you enjoy yourselves. I hope you are healthy. Hope you're happy. I don't know how to end this. I never know how to end it, but I just want (laughs) to, I don't know. Let's just have a moment of silence. You like that? You can kind of hear the song playing too. That's nice. Okay. (laughs) 